If God is a passable being, one who can fluctuate, perhaps one who's even unpredictable from one state to the other, one who is mutable, uh, that would introduce some type or, or many types of limitations to God. A God that changes would no longer be uh, the perfect being that we see in the scriptures. That's right. You have two sets of attributes with God, negative and positive. The negative attributes, such as infinity, all it means is he's not, he doesn't possess any finite uh, qualities, okay? Uh, if you say he's immutable, it means he doesn't change like everything else in the created order changes. If you say he's impassable, you're saying what he is not. He's not a being that changes emotional changes of state depending on what's happening. But those negative attributes are to protect the positive attributes. The perfection of his, his love being the primary one. He can only be unchangeably and impassively perfect in love if he's impassable. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host, and let me invite you to join me for yet another theological conversation. Does God suffer? Is God susceptible to emotional change? Is God made up of passions? Well, historically, the church has said no, asserting instead that our God, being immutable, unchanging, is also an impassable being. Nevertheless, in the last 200 years or so, modern theologians and uh, philosophers, even uh, some of evangelical stripe, have rejected impassibility, arguing instead that unless our God is an emotional God, one who suffers even, he cannot then relate to us, love us, and be personal uh, with us, or perhaps even be personal in his very own nature. Well, I am delighted to have as our guest today, a very special guest, uh, Thomas Wynandy, who has taught at a number of Catholic universities over the decades, and he has taught at the University of Oxford for 12 years. Uh, he's also the author of a number of publications. Uh, you may know or be aware of his book, Does God Suffer?, uh, published with Notre Dame Press. And he's also written some more accessible or we could say more popular level articles uh, that you may be interested in. Uh, one of those goes by that same name, Does God Suffer? It's written with first things. And it's articles like these that have sparked uh, a number of conversations, even debate over whether God is or is not uh, an impassable God. Uh, Dr. Wynandy, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to talk with you. I'm looking forward to our, our conversation on this 
uh, quite important topic, not only theologically, but pastorally as well. I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, one of the uh, goals in our time together is not just to get into some of the the complicated, uh, difficult uh, issues of impassibility, but also to draw out uh, some of the pastoral and very practical implications of this this attribute for the Christian life. But before we get there, let's just start with uh, the context, our own context, uh, the, the world in which we find ourselves in. And let's ask the question, well, what are some of the reasons? I mentioned this uh, at the beginning, but what are some of the reasons that our own modern era has really assumed in many ways that God, well, he, he just must be a passable being? Well, I think uh, uh, there's basically uh, three areas or three sets of reasons that uh, the passability of God has uh, uh, entered into the discussion, and actually uh, for quite a long time, although I think it's diminishing now quite significantly, that the majority of theologians uh, held for the passability of, of God. Uh, it all really began in the mid-late uh, 1800s and went through the 1900s, 20th century, uh, and it was um, very strong. Uh, one of the the sort of cultural reasons uh, that the theological community uh, jettisoned the impassibility of God, that God does not have emotional changes of state, and particularly that God did not suffer, uh, was uh, the, the culture in which uh, many people were suffering, like during the uh, the uh, Industrial Revolution, uh, but it really blossomed with the with the First and Second World War, and particularly uh, with Auschwitz. Auschwitz sort of became the the um, the template or the um, the logo for a suffering God. How could God let millions and millions of innocent people suffer and die? without himself participating in that suffering and suffering with them. Uh, So that if God was a compassionate, loving God, seeing innocent people, Jews, uh, and as well as Christians and others, uh, suffering in such a horrendous way, under such horrendous evil, uh, would he not, by the very nature of being a loving, personal God, uh, suffer with them? And so that... Uh, that was the cultural context in which uh, a passable notion of God took root and, and really grew in, in, within the theological and pastoral uh, community of, of Christianity. Uh, but that cultural feeling or sense of a suffering God seemed to find uh, biblical support uh, in both the Old and New Testament. Um, we see in the in the Old Testament God changing his mind, for example. He seems to go from one state to another state. You know, first he's going to, uh, he elected, uh, um, uh, 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 who's the first king of Israel? Um, Saul, definitely. Saul, Saul, yeah. First, yeah. Samuel, first Samuel 15. You, 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 you could tell I'm a Catholic. I don't know my scriptures very well. <laughs> I, I won't hold but, it against you. 
so, but uh, you know, Saul. He appoints Saul, and then 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 he throws Saul out. You know, he changes his mind about Saul, uh, and he, he repents. You know, he you know he says he's going to you know condemn the Israelites and you know and uh, kill all the Israelites in the desert, and then he repents of that after Moses implores him, and he changes his mind and repents and doesn't and doesn't um, kill the Israelites. Uh, but the you know the Old Testament you know it does you know God seems to suffer because of His people's people unfaithfulness. Uh, he he suffers with them when they're suffering. He suffers on behalf of them. He's concerned about them, uh, and so it seems like the, the Old Testament, especially, we have a, a very uh, passable God who changes in many many different ways and goes through one emotional state or one conviction to to another. When we get to um, the New Testament, of course, we we see, uh, you know, the Son of God becoming man. Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. And traditionally, uh, while the, because of the, in light of, uh, you know, the Council of Nicaea and Chalcedon, uh, the church has always, um, the theological tradition has always said, well, uh, Jesus does not suffer within his divinity as God, but it's really the Son of God who suffers as man. He really experiences uh, sorrow uh, at unbelief. Uh, you know, he has pity on the poor. But, of course, the high point of this is, is in his passion and death, where and he suffers the crucifixion, the scourging, the crowning of thorns, and death. But uh, traditionally, this was always the Son of God suffering as man and not suffering as God. But within this biblical and cultural context, uh, this began to change. They said, well, uh, it's not enough for the Son of God to suffer as God, man, uh, he must suffer as God in his very divinity. He must feel pain and sorrow and suffering, etc. And equally, then, you had those theologians, Jorgman uh, uh, Moltmann would be one, uh, where uh, the father suffers uh, in the suffering of his son, that because his son is suffering, <clears throat> Uh, God himself in his divine nature is suffering as well at the innocent uh, death of his son and the rejection of his son. So we, we have brought in uh, suffering to in the very nature of God being uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, and so that there seemed to be biblical warrant for a suffering God. One of the other things that enter into this is that uh, all the those who are promoting uh, a passable suffering of God, a God who goes through emotional changes of of state, was they 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 made the the uh, sort of enemy Greek philosophy. They said the reason the church, in its tradition, upheld the immutability of God, that God does not change or the impassibility of God that he does not undergo emotional changes of state on Greek philosophy, because the Greek gods were supposedly immutable and impassable. And so that 
wrong philosophy overrode uh, the biblical revelation and 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 sort of it was the Greek notion of God, the God of Plato uh, or Aristotle uh, that took over the Bible and entered into the Christianity and and now we've uh, come to jettison this false philosophy uh, and went back to a true biblical understanding of of God. The third area follows upon that. Um, uh, you had the rise of process philosophy and uh, process theology flowing from that. Uh, uh, Whitehead, a British philosopher, was one of the initiators of this. And process uh, philosophy and theology just says everything changes, everything changes, including God. And the way they saw this was is that God's being is constituted by what happens in the world. While God, in a sense, is distinct, yet everything that takes place in the world ultimately enters into the very uh, nature of God. So it constitutes God. So if I'm suffering here on earth, uh, God himself, that my suffering becomes part of the very being of God. And, and so the whole world, the whole world, the whole of reality, all human beings, end up making God to be what God is. And if we have a million people suffering at Auschwitz, or six million, whatever, uh, that makes up God, and so God suffers uh, in union with us because his very being is established by what takes place in in the world. And that philosophy became quite popular. Again, it's, it's uh, for the most part, passé, but it's part of this whole pantheistic notion of God that uh, that uh, while God is other than everything, everything does make up the very being of of God. And so, for those those three uh, sets of reasons, the impassibility of God uh, really took on a life of its own. The the cultural setting, especially uh, after World War II and Auschwitz and the Holocaust. Uh, a, a new reading of the Bible, uh, where God seems to be passable, as well as the philosophical understanding as well. So that that's really how it came came into its its own. Now you mentioned uh, I, I caught this in in that last phrase you used a new reading of the Bible, and I think what uh, is being assumed there is that well actually up to the modern era, many Christians did not read their Bible in this way, uh, or right. were not even familiar with, or, or perhaps we it would be more accurate to say they, they weren't necessarily uh, persuaded by uh, some of these um, influences or reasons, as you've said, mm-hmm. whether it's a process thought or, or maybe a cultural motivation with suffering. It's not that that Christians in ages past didn't suffer. Sure, certainly they did, and and sometimes even uh, more suffering occurred than than we're even familiar with in the 21st mm-hmm. century. But uh, that, with that assumption being there, uh, can you explain uh, first of all why is it that uh, many Christians in the past, well, they went the opposite uh, route. They went they went down the opposite road and affirmed impassibility. Maybe it would be helpful just to begin by. Uh, laying out uh, some terms here. What exactly are, right. are we referring to when we say God is impassable? Right. Well, uh, 
from a biblical perspective, or why from a biblical perspective, huh? Is that right? That's right. Okay. I think there's there's two reasons. I think in the past, whether you had um, you had uh, the the Christians read the Bible, realizing that a lot of what says in the Bible is trying to say something true, uh, but saying something true not in a literal sense. Uh, so, for example, they, they knew we were having certain amount of anthropomorphism. We have to describe God within our our human understanding of ourselves. So, you know, we talked about, you know, God having a, a strong arm or a strong hand and, you know, wielding his sword and, and uh, you know, all of these kinds of things, you know. Uh, but they read them as not as... What they're trying to say is God, God is good and perfect, and so he trounces down evil, wields his sword against the enemy, and, you know, he, he has, they we're talking, God's ears are bent down towards us, and he, his eyes see us, and, but what they're, you know, they're trying to describe, uh, you know, that God is aware of what's going on, and that he was conquering evil and raising up the good and the poor and the lowly. Uh, and so they took them as anthropomorphic, human ways of describing God that can't, but, but are trying to say something that's really true, but not saying it in a literal manner, okay? The other thing is that I think there's, uh, they realized that while they were talking about God in a human manner, they knew the reason they could not take these descriptions literally is because God was other than the than the finite order. He did not exist as a member of the created cosmos and all therein. And I think you see this very clearly in some of the uh, uh, the manners in which the Bible stresses the very nature of God. Uh, so. One of these would be that uh, there's just one God, okay? There's not many gods. And the fact that there is just one God, this one God is distinct from all the many things that exist. He's not part of, in a, part, part of, in a sense, of the many created things. He exists as one, while related to the many, uh, he exists apart from the many as the one transcendent God. And the way they described that, <clears throat> or tried to articulate that, or what was revealed, actually, uh, was uh, God was a creator. He was the creator God. Only the biblical notion of God in his revelation makes a distinction between what is created and what is uncreated, and that is God. Uh Greek philosophy never had a notion of creatio ex nihilo, God creating by his mere will and power out of nothing. But God being the creator, again, made him a different kind of being than the things he created. Uh, the things that he created uh, were, were impotency. You know, they, could, they could change. They could undergo... Uh, changes whether becoming good or bad or repenting or 
all, all sorts of ways in which they were, were changeable beings. But God, being the creator, had existed in a different kind of way than they did. And so as the creator, he was the all-perfect God. He was all good. He was all holiness. Holiness is a big thing for God, and holiness separates God from all else that is. He has to make the—only he can make things holy because only he is holy in himself. Uh, he's all good. He's perfect goodness, and therefore he's one who could make good things. Uh, he's the one who is all-loving, and therefore could, in making us in his image and likeness of God, could make us loving and beings. You know, he knew all things, and so, again, he could make us so that we could know things. So it's these, these attributes, these what I would call central attributes of God being holy and, and good and perfect in all these ways uh, that made him distinct from all else, and also that he's the Savior. The reason he can be the Savior, because he's not limited by the constraints that take place within our created order. Uh, I may not be, or the Israelites may not be strong enough uh, to beat the Romans, okay? Uh, that's because they're not all-powerful. But God is all-powerful, and so he could help Israel fight off the Jebusites or the Hittites or the Amalekites or whoever. Uh, he was not constrained by the vicissitudes of history or the vicissitudes of, of governments or power. He could really be the Savior precisely because he was not limited in his power by being part of the created order. And so these were the attributes that led to uh, the, you know, the, the writers of the authors of the Bible, as well as Christians and Jews later on, to say that God is immutable. He, it's because of his perfection. God can't change to become more good than he is. He can't change so he's more loving than he is. Uh, he in himself is the perfection of love, the perfection of goodness, uh, and all these other attributes, and so he doesn't change. And similarly with impassibility, uh, because he's all good and loving, uh, nothing can be taken away from him that would cause him to suffer. You can't injure God. You can't pull out from him some of his goodness, so now he suffers because he's not all good, or you can't pull out some of his love so he's no longer as loving as he as he was and so it's the notion of god being this perfect all be all good being all loving being all forgiving that that was the the sort of the hermeneutical the interpretive principle uh that was at the heart of why God is immutable and why God is impassable. Well, this has been an exciting conversation to have, but let's take a quick break and hear from Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Philosophy degree program is designed to equip leaders interested in building up the church. The Ph.D. Biblical Studies program at Midwestern Seminary provides opportunities for advanced research and preparation in theology in an environment passionate about God's primary plan for the advancement of the gospel, the local church. Choose from multiple emphases and let your advanced degree open up new opportunities for ministry in our rapidly changing world. 
with our modular program of study, you can remain in your current ministry setting. But we've also recently introduced the residency, an experiential component to the PhD track where local doctoral students receive one-on-one coaching and mentoring and a community context in which to bolster their studies. Get your PhD today for the church. Well, we're back from our break and we're ready to jump into our theological conversation once again. Now, I like how you have mentioned uh, God's perfection. You've used the word perfect many times, and and perhaps some of our listeners are wondering, well, I've never thought about God's perfection in relationship to, say, immutability or impassibility or what you're referring to, which some have called the creator-creature distinction. Uh, But it, it really is entirely appropriate because if God is a passable being, one who can fluctuate, perhaps one who's even unpredictable from one state to the other, one who is mutable, uh, that would introduce some type or or many types of limitations to God, a God that changes, would no longer be uh, the perfect being that we see in the Scriptures. And of course, uh, describing God as the perfect being being certainly uh, echoes Anselm, doesn't it, where he describes God as someone than which no one greater can be conceived. And he, he's That's getting right, at yes. this, this concept of uh, perfection itself, that if God is the most perfect being uh, conceivable, the most perfect being there is, well, then he can't be the, the creature. Uh, as the creator, he must be entirely distinct uh, not just mm-hmm. greater in degree, but a different type of being, a different quality mm-hmm. all together. Now, uh, what you've said, though, does raise some other questions. If we go this uh, down this road and, and describe God as the perfect being, the, and, and uh, as a result of that, the one who's immutable, holy, uh, impassable, you've mentioned love, which I want to return to that in a minute, uh, but if we go down this road, oftentimes the objection is is quickly lobbed back. Well, this type of God must be apathetic, and he must be impersonal, because uh, usually the argument is something like this: a, a passable God. Well, that that type of God, he alone can love, and and certainly love us. So so the the objection really is, but doesn't uh, impassibility. Uh, throw into question uh, other attributes like love or even God's personal nature itself. H- how do we answer that type of objection? And, and perhaps we could even frame it differently and say, does impassibility not harm but actually protect God's personal, loving, compassionate relation to his creatures? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, uh, um, uh, I don't think uh, impassibility uh undermines uh the person the personhood of god whatsoever you know but not just the oneness of god but the father son and holy spirit as the three persons um who are god the one god and the reason is uh, well there's a twofold reason uh the israelites say in the old testament came to know that god is a person Precisely because he did personal kinds of things. Uh, for example, again, he was loving. Only a person can love. 
an impersonal being can't love. Uh, only a personal being can be compassionate. Only a personal being can be forgiving. Only a personal being has the love in which he can reach out and save somebody. Uh, only a personal being uh, can, can uh, you know, be courageous. Uh, all of these attributes, the manner in which God acted, revealed the manner of his being. All right? And the, so he, the manner in which he acted showed that he was truly truly a personal, personal God. But again, uh, it's precisely because he possesses personally the fullness of love or the fullness of compassion or the fullness of forgiveness um, that he could uh, act in a manner, a loving manner that far exceeds the love that a human being can have, all right? Uh, because he was, you know, you know, John says, you know, God is love. He, 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 he is the, he is love in act. He's the fullness of love in act. It, it contains every aspect of love that we can consider. Uh, and so, you know, he doesn't, he, because of his perfection, he can't, again, can't be more, more loving. Uh, if you make God impassable, then it means that he does not possess the fullness of love, but can grow in love. Uh, he doesn't possess the fullness of compassion uh, or the fullness of forgiveness. You know, he's brought down to a level of human nature, and because the 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 flip side of this is if. If the evil of this world enters into the very nature of God so that he's suffering because of sin and evil, then now you have a situation in which he needs to be saved. The problem is there's nobody out there who's any longer out there who is perfect, who can now, in a sense, save God. Uh, you know, it's like we got a virus in the entire computer system, and there's nobody out there to to cleanse the computer, uh, you know, it's it's we're we're all the whole of reality now is in a state where evil has control, and no one can save us from the evil. Uh, so by making God impassable, you don't make him more loving. You just infect him with the same disease that we have, uh, and so uh, there's no one there's no one who exists in a manner. Uh, such that he can truly be our loving Savior and Redeemer, uh, who can free us from sin and death and our and our guilt of condemnation. You know, one of the uh, when we talk about the attributes of God, uh, so, so often the focus falls on these issues of impassibility, immutability, suffering. One of the things you mentioned earlier that is really key is God's infinitude—that He is an infinite. Being And what I hear you returning to again and again is that if God is a passable God, uh, one who is susceptible to change, uh, even emotional change or, or perhaps suffering itself, uh, 
not only does that do harm to God's infinite nature, uh, but it does harm to the infinite uh, quality of his attributes. So that you mentioned love, for example. If he is not an immutable, impassable being, well, then it throws into question whether his love is infinite or whether there actually is a need for it to become more complete, whether it has potential and it needs perfecting, whether it's lacking and it needs greater fullness. So uh, to our listeners, it's important to keep in mind when we're thinking about these issues that we're not just talking about, say, impassibility or immutability. Actually, uh, everything hangs in the balance, especially God's infinite nature. If he is going to be the the perfect being, uh, then he must be one who has fullness of being, who, who is, who is uh, infinite in every way, and therefore his very attributes, whether it's love or holiness or his, his uh, righteousness, for example, uh, they, they must be infinite in nature. In other words, they are not lacking in any way. They, they, there's yes, there's yes. no scenario in which they could somehow uh, become more than they already are eternally. That's right. You have two sets of attributes with God, negative and positive. The negative attributes, such as infinity, all it means is he's not, he doesn't possess any finite uh, qualities, okay? Uh, if you say he's immutable, it means he doesn't change like everything else in the created order changes. If you say he's impassable, you're saying what he is not. He's not a being that changes emotional changes of state, depending on what's happening. But those negative attributes are to protect the positive attributes, the perfection of his, his love being the primary one. He can only be unchangeably and impassively perfect in love if he's impassable. Uh, you know, and so the, the, the negative attributes do not make him apathetic. They do not make him unloving. They do not make him... What they're doing is assuring that God is infinitely passionate passionate in his impassable love. Um, you know, it's, it, it, so it's not, it's not downgrading his passion or his concern or solicitude. It's heightening it up to the perfect, to the infinite degree, so it's absolutely and utterly... Mm utterly perfect. Now, that's not the case with human beings. Uh, Depending on the situation, we enact different different aspects of love. So if I'm a parent and my child runs out in the street, uh, my four-year-old, you know, I, I, I get angry, not because I don't love it, but it's precisely because I love that I am very firm with this child, you mm. shall not run out in the street That's anymore. Right. That's right, which okay? any parent knows. <laughs> yes, yes. But if the child says, oh, I'm sorry, Mommy, well, then the parent now changes from a firmness of anger, in a sense, to the compassionate forgiveness. You, okay, you're forgiven, but don't do it again. But, but you know, and, and you, know, it's, you know, so we change... Uh, depending on the situation, we, we, we enact different aspects of love depending on the situation. But God, because he's, he has all, acts, all aspects of love perfectly enact eternally, 
we may experience God's love in different ways, but that doesn't mean his love changes in different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, when he's per- because he's perfectly in love, perfect love in act, if I sin, I experience God's love as condemnation, you know, mm-hmm. anger. But if that knowledge of God's anger because I've sinned affects me, I repent of sin, but God doesn't change from an angry God now to a compassionate, forgiving God. I just experience his perfect love now as one of compassion and forgiveness, you know? Uh, It's not that God is constantly, you know, changing from being happy with me to being sad, to being angry, to being forgiving. His all, because he's perfect love and act, all aspects of Love are perfectly in in act. Uh, That's an if, excellent point. If he wasn't point. that way, uh, if he isn't, if he's not, can you? We make him into some kind of whirly gig, you know. Mm. So you know, at one moment he's mad at Tom Wynandy because he sinned, but simultaneously now he's got to be happy with Joe Blow because he's just asked for forgiveness. And you got millions of people out there doing millions of bad things and millions of good things, and we got God you know, going through emotional turmoil, mm. changing from one aspect to another. I mean, that's ridiculous. Uh, you know, he's always perfect in, his, in the calmness and bliss of his love, and, and depending on how, what we're doing, how we're relating to him, you know, whether it's in sin or righteousness or forgiveness or holiness, we experience that love in accordance with what, who we are at the time. You know, much of what you're saying reminds me also of our attribute of simplicity, Uh, because if God is in this emotional turmoil, he's a God who's really very divided and conflicted uh, within himself. And like you Uh mentioned earlier, I think this is a point we need to stress. Uh, As much as a suffering God may seem at first to be a comfort to us, when we really think about it, actually a suffering God is not a God who's capable of redeeming and saving and coming to our rescue uh, in, in all of our uh, all of our sinfulness and condemnation. Now let's let's talk though about the elephant in the room, which is the incarnation itself. Right. You mentioned right. Moltmann. Uh, Moltmann is very famous uh, because of his appeal to the cross, so that. No matter what we say, the cross for him is the ultimate proof that God must be uh, a passable, suffering God. And like you mentioned, for Moltmann, that doesn't just mean that uh, at the cross, uh, the the humanity of of the Son is suffering, but the very deity, the very divinity of the Son, and not just the Son, but the Father as well. Uh, when we look at uh, the Incarnation— uh, how do we understand, I know this is a massive question, and I would point readers to your longer treatment in your book, Does God Suffer? But how do we understand the incarnation or the hypostatic union in relationship to uh, a Savior who who seems to suffer and, and does suffer? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, you, you, well, you'll find this, like, like you said, in Does God Suffer, you also find it in my book, Does God Change? On the words becoming in the incarnation. Uh, uh, but you're, you're, you're right. So in the incarnation, the Son of God assumes a humanity like our own. 
So he actually, he doesn't change in becoming man uh, in his divinity. What the change is that, you know, he was only existed as God, but now the Son of God came to exist as a true human being. Uh, His humanity is like ours in every way. The big difference, obviously, is, is who it is who exists as a man is a son of God. The identity of the man Jesus, who he is, is the son of God. And so everything the son of God does as man is done in a human manner. Uh, and so what the church has always insisted upon from the earliest, well, it's, it's part of the New Testament, uh, but theologically through all the fathers and the medieval theologians, Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventure, the whole, whole gang, uh, is that uh, when we see Jesus suffering on the cross, we see a man suffering. But who it is who is suffering is the Son of God. Is he suffering as God? No. I mean, this is a this this is a tremendous mystery. But but he's not suffering as God. But because he actually exists as a man, the true Son of God is suffering in a human manner, just as you and I would suffer if we were nailed to the cross. Now, this is important, not so much because of the suffering but because of the love that's contained within the suffering. That in love, he is offering his human life to the Father as a sacrifice for our sins. And the fact that it is the Son of God who in his human perfection, in his human holiness, as it says in Hebrews, because he's offering his holy and innocent life on the cross to the Father as a sacrifice of our sins, that's what makes it redemptive and saving, uh, and and it's 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 he's doing it's the Son of God saving us as man. He's not saving us as God. He's saving us as man, as one of us, because it's we human beings who need to be saved. And so, what's important is the Son of God experiences the suffering of human nature the suffering that rises out of sin uh, that is re- re- uh, redemptive. Um, and, and so it's, 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 it's the, the human... If Son of God experienced human suffering, he'd have to experience it in a divine way. But if he's experiencing human suffering in a divine way, it's not really human suffering anymore. Mm. It's, it's something else. Uh, what we want... What we want is redemptive suffering that is human, that he, you know, he takes upon himself our sin and our suffering and our, our humanness, but he transforms it through an act of love in the offering of his life, offering of his life on the cross to the Father so that we can be reconciled to the Father and receive the Father's for forgiveness. And equally, on the other hand, like Moltmann wants God the Father to suffer because his son suffering. Well, if you read the Bible, for heaven's sakes, the New Testament, I just read it the other day. Jesus says in John's Gospel, the Father loves me because I lay down my life for my sheep. 
Uh. He's not, you know, and equally, you know, uh, the, 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 the father, uh, oh, I lost, uh, I forgot what I was, uh, yeah. he's not only is he loving, but he's pleased, you know, he's pleased that the son is willing to, to lay down his life uh, for, for the salvation of the world. So in one sense, yes, the father is not happy, you know, in the sense of innocent, but he's pleased that he's willing to to die innocently for the salvation of the world. That's what what motivates the father loves what the son is doing. Just like when we have Christian martyrs, God the Father doesn't want Christian martyrs, but the fact that you have a human being that's willing to lay down his life for the faith, the father is well pleased. He loves the Christian who lays down his life for the faith, you know? It's not that he's up there agonizing all of this. He's rejoicing mm. that he has a faithful Christian, a faithful follower of Jesus, willing to do this. Well, I think there is definitely an irony that you're getting at here. The irony is thick. Uh, I think it's thick, uh, in at least with uh, those like Moltmann and others who, who would say that, uh, well, God as God— must suffer at the cross. I, I think it's worth pointing out here that if Christ suffers uh, in his very deity, uh, then we, we certainly have, ironically enough, we have actually excluded the Son from suffering for us as a substitute. Right. That is in a real, very human, authentic, genuine human manner. Uh, and so it, it, it's, it's very ironic. I do want to point out, though, just for the record, uh, that uh, you mentioned, uh, you do read your Bible and you are a Catholic. How and, and you know, what? <laughs> I, I think that I, is. I just read. Yes, I yes, I. I, <laughs> I just published a book. I just published a book called "Jesus Becoming Jesus: A Theological Interpretation of the Synoptic Gospel." So I. I do read my Bible. <laughs> so you not only are a uh, Christian theologian and philosopher, but even a biblical theologian. Uh, so, uh, and, and you know, it's one of those really. It really, it really is one of those uh, moments when, is even though take you and I for example, we have differences. You're a, a Catholic. I'm a Protestant. Uh, certainly around doctrines like impassibility, we find ourselves actually having a lot of agreement. Though we may have disagreement on other issues, here we we have an enormous amount of, of agreement. I would like to point our listeners, if you've really enjoyed what uh, Thomas Wynandy has shared with us, uh, not only to his, his own books, uh, books that he's mentioned, Does God Suffer?, does God change? But also, especially on issues like Christology, uh, go back and read some of the early uh, Orthodox creeds, the Nicene Creed or the Creed of the Council of Chalcedon. You'll notice very early on they, are, they too are wrestling with some of these issues, trying to carefully uh, and theologically and biblically uh, distinguish between the two natures of, of Christ without mixing them together or meshing them together and compromising the hypostatic union. Well, there's so much more we could say here, so much more, and uh, you have really uh, given us uh, so much uh, to discuss in the years to come about impassibility. Let me just say to our listeners, if you are intrigued by this topic, go read Thomas Wynandy's article with First Things. It's called, Does God Suffer? It's been a pleasure to have Thomas Wynandy uh, with us on the Credo podcast. And 
what an incredible discussion this is when we are talking about the very issue of impassibility, something that is central to the doctrine of God itself. Does God suffer? Well, many today say, yes, God does suffer. And at first, such a thought might seem very comforting, as if a suffering God is a God who we can relate to and one that can relate to us. But when we actually think about what this might entail, we come to understand that actually a suffering God is a God who is, well, one that has his at least one hand tied behind his back. A God who suffers is a God who is incapable of saving. And a God who suffers is a God who has been stripped of his absolute and perfect omnipotence. We need, as it turns out, an impassable God, not a God who is uh, subject to emotional change, not a God of passions, as the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, denies. Uh, We need a God, actually, who is unchanging and reliable. This does not mean that God is apathetic or impersonal. Rather, to say he is impassable is actually to affirm that this is the God who is perfect, infinite, and the immutable, unchanging creator of the universe. It's the very reason why his love, for example, can be an infinite and perfect love, a love that does not change. It's only an impassable God that can give us the greatest measure of hope as those who are suffering in this world here and now. Only an impassable God, a God who doesn't suffer, can bring suffering and injustice in our world to an end permanently. And only an impassable God is capable of saving a world very much at the mercy of change itself. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation a conversation where doctrine matters.